All right, open up your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. Thank you very much. It's an interesting question, isn't it? How do you know that you are truly a Christian? Huh? And this is what the Bible teaches us. It's a changed life. You know the tree by its fruit. And that is the, the great evidence of the Christian faith is a changed life. Ephesians chapter 5 is where we're at. It's on page 1159 in your, uh, your Bible. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 to 6. This is our text this morning. Ephesians 5, 3 to 6. It says, But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you this morning that your love for us is so great that you've sent Christ to save us, that you have given us your word so that we can know you. And God, our desire is that we would be a people who would reflect your love back to you, that we would be in love with you the way you have shown your love to us. And so God, as we open up your word this morning, as we, as we look at, um, in some ways, what's a really heavy text, it's, it's a very challenging text, yet, Lord, we know it's your word, and we know that You've given us this word, even the difficult parts of your word, to make us more and more into your likeness and to love you more. God, I pray that as we open up your text today, you would speak to us and minister to us. Lord, I realize many people are here this morning with different burdens on their hearts, with different struggles in their lives. Some of us are still struggling financially. The economy's picking up a little, but it doesn't seem like it from our perspective. God, I pray for those who are struggling that you would provide for them, provide jobs and resources. Lord, I pray for those who are at crossroads in their life. Give them the wisdom to make decisions. Lord, I pray for those who are carrying a heavy load of grief and hurt this morning, that you might lift that load from their, sh their shoulders. They might be able to have freedom and healing in Christ. And God, I pray for all of us that you would give us a greater vision of yourself so that we would be stirred up to love you more. Lord, we are dissatisfied with our current state of apathy, and lethargy in spiritual things. We are dissatisfied with the lukewarmness of our love toward Jesus. And so, God, we pray that you might restoke the flames of our love for Christ this morning, that we might leave here refocused, ready to face the trials of another week, walking in the Holy Spirit and in Christ. And so, Lord, we trust that you'll do that now through your word, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I had the joy yesterday of uh, performing a wedding ceremony here at the church. It, it was a great wedding. The bride and the groom looked gorgeous, nice, simple wedding. It was really wonderful. I, I've never ceased to be amazed, though, at, at how much effort goes into getting the bride ready for the wedding day. It's, it's hours and hours of painstaking work. It's not for the groom. The groom's easy. I mean, he wakes up around noon plays Xbox in his boxer shorts for two hours, and then about an hour before the wedding decides maybe he should take a shower. Uh, this is not how it is for the bride. 
If she's up early, she's getting a manicure, a pedicure, a facial, she's having things done that, that we as men don't even you know, understand what those words mean. Uh, she has her hair done and, and it's this really intricate uh, hairstyle and there's a veil that's woven into it. And so she's walking out to her car you know, very calmly to make sure that nothing musses up her hair or anything like that. Then she puts on a $500,000, $700,000 dress and uh, gets to the church and, and it comes out of the limo. If it's raining, people are there with umbrellas to make sure that you know, no rain gets on her. And where they usually end up when they get married here is down in my office. That's kind of the, uh, the, the bullpen for the bride. She goes down there, <laughs> hangs out in my office, and, and I usually go down to peek just to make sure she's there. And, and I'll, uh, I'll peek around the door, and the scene is usually of the bride standing there very still, and all the bridesmaids are like, you know, going around, just like bees around a flower. You know, they're just you're fixing this and, and primping that. And it's, it, it's this amazing sort of um, uh, removal that takes place. The bride, in a sense, removes herself from life. She, and on that day, she's, she's perfectly dressed, and she doesn't want to touch anything dirty. She doesn't want to get rain or wind to blow her hair. And she, she won't drink anything but a glass of water, because that could spill and leave a stain. It, nothing. She sequesters herself from all contaminants, and make sure that, that she's not going to get dirty on her wedding day. In fact, observing this gave me an idea for an invention. And if I tell you, I trust that you're not going to take my invention. But you know those hamster balls? You know? <laughs> those like plastic spheres, and you put the hamster in it, and the hamster like... I, here's the idea. Bride ball. Okay? <laughs> I, I think it would work. You put her in that on the wedding day, and she could sort of, you know, cruise around. And nothing would, would mess up her outfit. <laughs> we, we as Christians, are the bride of Christ. Those of us who know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord are the bride of Christ. The church is explicitly called in the Bible the bride of Christ. And in the same way that a bride on her wedding day completely segregates herself from anything that would contaminate her, so we, as the bride of Christ, who are awaiting the return of the groom, in a sense, are called to sequester ourselves from anything that would pollute us spiritually. And that's what our text is about today. It's that call of holiness upon those whom Christ has rescued. Christ has pulled us out of the cesspool of sin. Christ has washed us clean with His blood shed on the cross. Christ has clothed us in the robes and in the gowns of his righteousness, not ours. And Christ has perfumed us with the Holy Spirit. We are a bride waiting for the groom. And so let us be free from anything that would contaminate us in a spiritual sense. That's the point of our text. Uh, in our text, you'll notice, it's interesting, there are two commands in verse 3 and verse 4. And then that's followed by two reasons for the commands. That's the structure of the passage. Two commands and then two reasons for the commands. Let's just read our text again and see if you can notice the two commands and then the two reasons for the commands. The first command is verse 3. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Then here's the second command. Nor should there be any, any obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. 
And then the first reason. For, this, of, of, for of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Christ. And then the second reason. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. So let's look at the first commandment that Paul gives, the first calling to live a holy life. He says in verse 3, But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. The first command, if we could summarize it, is a command to avoid sinful living. It's a command to avoid sinful living. And and to give us uh, three for instances of sinful living, Paul named sexual immorality, impurity, and greed. He could have listed more. He just picked those three illustratively of what it means to live sinfully. Let's look at them each in turn. First of all, there's sexual immorality and impurity. Those kind of go together. When Paul says sexual immorality, he's talking uh, about a Greek word. It's a Greek word he uses. It's porneia. It's from which we get our word pornography and and porn. Porneia. And when Paul uses porneia, what he means is any sexual expression outside of the confines of a male-female marriage. That's what porneia is. Porneia is any kind of sexual expression outside of marriage between man and woman. God made sex. That's a funny thought, isn't it? He invented it. He's the one who gave it to us. It's a sacred thing. But God not only made it, He also made it for a specific purpose. Sex is the physical expression of married oneness. Sex is the the physical manifestation of the unity experience between a husband and a wife. It's a sacred, wonderful thing. And so that's why it's saved for that context. And to take it out of that context and to use it elsewhere is to profane something that's very sacred and holy created by God. So what are some examples of porneia? Well, we could you know, think of them. Things like uh, um, prostitution, adultery, living together before you're married, casual sex, homosexuality. We watched in uh, disgust and, and shock this week as the Episcopal Church in New Hampshire voted to affirm porneia at its highest levels of leadership. It, it's, it's shocking and shameful. And God calls us to flee, to, to put as much distance between us as we can between porneia and ourselves. And, and I think that's the case especially. It's not because Paul's sort of obsessed with sex, but it's just that, that sex is such a powerful force. I like to liken it to nu- nuclear energy. If it's harnessed, it can do amazingly wonderful things. But if it's set free, it's an incredibly destructive energy. And so it needs to be used in the proper way. And so Paul calls us to not even have a hint. See that? Let there not even be a hint of sexual immorality. It literally says in Greek, let it not be named among you. Don't, let it, don't even talk about it. Just stay clear of it. I once heard of a business, excuse me, a businessman who'd go on trips. And uh, he, when he got to his hotel on his business trips... He'd say, is my you know, key, his credit card, all that stuff. He says, oh, by the way, could you go to my room and take out the TV? And this was his regular practice. He would ask for the TV to be removed from his room. And, and the people would look at him like, what? Yeah, remove the TV from my room. Because he knew how it was. He knew that he was alone, that he was tired, that he was lonely on a business trip, and that perhaps he had just been in a meeting with some clients and got rocked. 
you know, in this meeting, and so he's depressed and discouraged. And he knows that when he gets in that room all by himself, there's going to be too strong of a temptation not to turn on some kind of illicit programming. And so in order to sequester himself from anything that might contaminate, that's the way he dealt with it. He just went to a room and said, TV gone, please. We have to make sure that, that we keep a great distance from sexual immorality because of its incredible power for either good or for destruction, depending upon how it's used. One of the things our pastoral staff did several years ago is we went to the stewardship committee in our church, this, uh, people who take care of the buildings and grounds, and we said, could you take the doors in our offices off and put in doors with windows? They used to just be solid doors. We said, we want doors with windows because, you know, as pastors, we have to counsel with people. We have to meet with women. We have to meet with young people. And with all the scandals and garbage that goes on in the church, it's like, I don't want to meet behind closed doors with anybody. And I don't care who you are. I don't care how trustworthy you are. I don't want to meet behind closed doors with you. In fact, we have a policy. We don't meet with women in the church alone, ever. I mean, if I'm going to meet with somebody in church and it's a lady and she wants to talk, that's fine. So glad to be of help. But I call up Seth. I'm like, Seth, you just got to be here. I need a spotter, right? I need a spotter. I need someone just to be here in the building. Because it's not that, you know, we're paranoid or something. It's just God calls us to purity. And in this environment, in our culture, we have to be so careful in this area of our lives. We have to make sure that we keep a great distance between ourselves and sexual immorality that would contaminate us. But it's not just sexual immorality. Look, he goes on. He says, don't let there be any kind of sexual immorality, any kind of impurity, or of greed. Well, that's, that's a little trickier, huh? Greed, of course, is that insatiable desire for more. More money. More toys. More cars. More clothes. I've got to have more and more and more. And I, I find it interesting that greed is put on the same sentence as sexual immorality. Because I think sometimes it's easy to pinpoint sexual immorality and say, oh, look at the Bishop of New Hampshire. I mean, look at that. That's terrible. But then I've got to look in my own heart and say, is there greed? And it's easy to point at that, but it's, it's harder to say, am I a greedy person? Are there things that I'm craving after? But in God's eyes, it's the same. Sin is sin. And he calls us as Christians to stay away from a sinful lifestyle, from an unholy life. And notice what he says there at the end of verse 3. These are improper for God's holy people. You are the holy ones of God through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has rescued us from the cesspool of sin. He's washed us and made us holy through His blood shed on the cross. He's clothed us in His righteousness. He's perfumed us with the Holy Spirit. And so, as God's holy people, just stay away from it. Let's not go back to the cesspool of sin and stand on the edge and dangle our toes over. Maybe you're standing there dangling your toes over this morning. You're flirting with with uh, danger and with sin. You know, step away from the cesspool. Maybe you're waiting in it. Get out. Christ can save you. Christ can forgive you and cleanse you and put you back on the right track. That's the first command. Avoid sinful living. We are the holy people of God, forgiven by Christ. And so let us sequester ourselves from any contaminants. Look at verse 4. Here's the second command. He says, Nor should there be obscenity, Foolish talk or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. This is a command against sinful speech. The first command is against sinful living. The second is against sinful speech. Don't let there be any obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking. I think we could think here of things like, 
Um, dirty jokes, obviously. Uh, sexual innuendos in our speech. Uh, obscenities, profanity, swearing. Four-letter words, F-bombs, all kinds of bombs, <laughs> all kinds of garbage that comes out of our mouths. And uh, obviously these things aren't good. I, I, was, I was thinking, though, why is swearing bad? You ever think of that? Obviously we have the sense swearing is bad. Why is swearing sinful? I was wrestling with that. I remember, actually, I had a class at Wheaton College when I was there, and I was there with a professor. He was a linguistics professor, and we were talking about words and their meaning in different languages and the fact that words really are given meaning by a particular language. And it was, he shocked us because he said, he said, what's wrong with saying the word, and he just dropped this huge expletive. And we're all like, did he just say that in a class? But, you know, it challenged us. We're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. What is wrong with that word? I mean, it's not that that combination of consonants and, sil- and uh, vowels is somehow inherently evil. The same word could be used in you know, Estonian to mean something really positive. So it, it's not that the word is inherently evil. So what is wrong with swearing? Well, I think our text is helpful. Look at verse 4 again. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place. Here we go. But rather thanksgiving. The problem with swearing is that it doesn't lift my eyes to praise and glorify Christ. When someone says, oh, I hate that, mm," and they swear, then I'm not looking up to Christ when they swear. I'm looking down at problems and at negativity. I think swearing has the same effect upon faith as grumbling and complaining. Both of them tend to bring me and my hearers down if I utter those those kinds of words. Just as it would be ridiculous for a bride on her wedding day to go about swearing and cussing and complaining and griping and criticizing and saying obscene things, just as that would be offensive for a bride to be doing that. So in the same way, we're the bride of Christ. Our lips should be filled up with praises and thanksgiving because we're awaiting the groom. So sinful talk is out of place for those who have been saved by Christ. So the first command of verse 3, avoid sinful living in all of its forms. Verse 4, avoid sinful talk. And then in verses 5 and 6, he gives us two reasons, two additional reasons why we should avoid these things. The first reason is verse 5. He says, For of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Living immorally, living a, a sinfully destructive lifestyle excludes us from the kingdom of God. If I fundamentally am defined by those kinds of lifestyles and those kinds of choices, then I'm going to be excluded from heaven. That's it. Sinful behavior excludes us from heaven's blessings. It's that cut and dry. In fact, if I decide to reject Christ, and I say, Christ, I'm not going to live the way you want me to live. I'm going to live how I want to live. I'm going to sleep with whom I want to sleep with. I'm going to say what I want to say. I'm going to be greedy after whatever I want to buy. God, I'm going to live my life on my terms. Fine. But there's no inheritance in the kingdom of God for me if I lived that way. Now, someone might say, whoa, 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 whoa. This, this sounds so judgmental. I thought I was going to come here to church service and it's all this doom and gloom. I mean, this is so judgmental. I don't like to think of God as a condemning judge. I like to think of the kingdom of God as open and inclusive not closed and exclusive, right? Well, the kingdom of God is open and inclusive. 
The gates of the kingdom of God are thrown wide open to anyone who will come to Jesus Christ. If you'll come to Jesus Christ, no matter who you are, what your background is, what mistakes you've made in your life, if you'll come to Jesus Christ and trust in Him, you are included in the kingdom of God by faith. But look, this is the key word. It's the kingdom of God and of Christ. It's a kingdom. Jesus ain't running a nightclub. Jesus is not owning and running a resort, hotel, and casino in the Caribbean. It's a kingdom. And to be in a kingdom presumes that you bow your knee before the king. It's not enough simply to have Christ as Savior. He also must be Lord of your life. Christ as Savior and Lord goes together. It's a package deal. And so to be saved by Christ implies that I also bow my knee before Christ and I say, your will be done. That is the true uh, heart of a believer. That's what Matt was talking about up here. How do I know I'm a Christian? Well, one of the great evidences of knowing you're a Christian is that you're bowing your knee before Christ. Not that we're perfect as Christians, but that that's the new trajectory of our heart. That's the way we're increasingly heading as believers, is to submit our lives before Christ. And so, of course, it doesn't make any sense to think that I could be included in the kingdom of God while I flaunt His laws. It just does not fit logically in any way. And so, that's one huge reason to leave behind sin, because if I don't leave behind sin, I can't really be sure that I'm a Christian and And if I'm not in Christ, then I'm cut out from heaven. But there's another reason given why we should flee a sinful lifestyle. And it's in verse 6. And this one's even heavier. Look at verse 6. Paul says, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. We don't like to think about a God of wrath. God of wrath seems somewhat passe. But one of the great things, at least I find, about preaching through a book like Ephesians, just preaching straight through it, is you can't jump over the hard stuff. We'd all love to talk about the love of God all day, and I love to talk about the love of God. But because we're studying through God's Word and letting God's Word guide us, when we hit things like wrath, we can't just go, oh, we don't want to talk about that. Look, God is a God of wrath as well as of love. This is what the Bible teaches. Not just, that's not just Old Testament. That's New Testament. That's Jesus. He talked about wrath a lot. Jesus probably talked about hell more than anyone else in the Bible. But again, uh, wrath is not popular today. People today don't like to talk about a God of wrath. This is not a, a common concept. In fact, it seems to me that the American consensus, as I listen to people talk, as we watch people talk about God in the popular media or in popular writings, when people talk about God today in America, you get this impression that God is all kind, all loving, all warm, all fuzzy. That's who God is. In fact, God in America has become kind of a personal support system. God is a higher power in America that each of us personally adopt for ourselves to help us through our personal issues, and no more. That's all God has become. He's just sort of been reduced to this little self-help idol who, who strengthens me in my issues in life. Now, uh, you know, again, this is not the biblical teaching on wrath or on God. And so when we come to the culture and we say, no, 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 God is a God of wrath as well. When we come to this cultural context and say, he's the God who judges and condemns. When you say God casts people into hell forever, you know, people will look at you like you're deranged. What are you talking about? 
That's not who God is, and people can't understand that today. J.I. Packer, the great theologian, summarized it well. He put it this way. He said, the modern habit throughout the Christian church is to play the subject of wrath down. Those who still believe in the wrath of God, and he says not all do, say little about it. Perhaps they do not think much about it. To an age which has unashamedly sold itself to the gods of greed, pride, sex, and self-will, the church mumbles on about God's kindness, but virtually nothing about his judgment. The fact is that the subject of divine wrath has become taboo in modern society. And Christians, by and large, have accepted the taboo and conditioned themselves never to raise the matter. Clearly, the theme of God's wrath is one about which the biblical writers feel no inhibitions whatsoever. Why then should we? Why, when the Bible is vocal about wrath, should we feel obliged to be silent? That's a good question. So, so what do we say to our culture? We have this Bible that does talk about a God of love, but also a God of wrath. What do we say to our culture that just thinks the idea of a judging God is ridiculous? Is God loving? Yes! God is loving. God is loving beyond your wildest imagination. Is God there to support us like a higher power who strengthens us? Yes, the Bible says that He's close to those who are brokenhearted. And anyone who calls upon Christ for help, He will help them. He will support them if they call out in faith. But not only is God loving and kind, the Bible is also clear that God is holy, holy, holy. That God is pure and righteous. And even the most holy, brilliant angels of heaven cover themselves in the presence of holy God. He is still God. He is still God. He's not just a personal self-help mechanism. He is holy God. So we were singing about this morning the, the greatness of our holy God that should make us fall on our faces on the carpet before Him. You are holy, O Lord. We act as if hell is some great mystery. Like the doctrine of hell is so hard to understand. We say, gee, I, under, I can think about a God. Maybe I can believe in God. But hell, I, I can't believe in that. That's hard to understand. What's so hard to understand about hell? My friends, the Bible is full of mysteries. There are a lot of things in the Bible I can't fully explain to you. Can't fully explain the Trinity. Can't fully explain predestination. Tough things to understand. Hell is not one of them. It's plain. You have a holy God, a holy, pure, righteous God who hates sin, who hates wickedness, and has given us everything, everything we have. This beautiful world, the beaches, our bodies, one another. He's given us every good gift. And what have we done except squander it and flaunt it and reject Him? Despite all that this holy God has done for us, we reject His laws, we redefine morality on our terms. Even when we play at religion, we cut and paste. We go, well, I like this and I like that. I don't like that and I'll do this. And we, we all create our own little designer religion that fits our needs. It's repugnant. What should a holy God do when His whole creation has just totally rebelled against Him? What should a king do when all of the subjects of the kingdom stage a massive revolt against Him? And He's been nothing but a holy and good king. What should He do? This is not hard to figure out. That we are a sinful people and deserve eternal condemnation? It's not a mystery. It's totally logical and plain. 
Look at our text. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. I know this is tough, but I want you to look in the mirror just a little bit more now. Don't blink yet. Keep looking. Be brave. Let's look a little bit more honestly at ourselves. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Let's look in the mirror. It says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Apart from Christ, I am spiritually a corpse in which you used to live when you followed God. Nope. When you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient, all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, here's the, the result, we were by nature objects of wrath. I remember talking to a guy at a party many years ago. And we got onto the subject of religion and he was, totally, he was totally blasted. He's sitting there with his drink and he's wasted. And we're talking about Christianity and stuff. And, and he says, you know, are you saying that I'm a bad person? That was his question to me. I said, well, yes and no. I mean, you're obviously not a bad person in the sense that you're not a serial killer or something. And, you know, compared to other people, there's probably people who've done a lot worse crimes than you or things like that. We can always find somebody who's done things we've never done. So in, in, in sort of a relative sense, you may be better or worse than other people in some sense. But in God's eyes, I said, we're all sinners. None of us can stand before God and say, well, what do you think? I'm pretty good, huh? None of us. Nobody can stand before God righteous. And this guy said, well, listen, if I'm not good enough for God, then I'd rather go to hell. <laughs> Stay clear. Lightning bolt. You know, just, whoo. That's, that's the heart of sin. I don't care what you say, God. This is what I'm going to do. That's the heart and essence of sin. My friends, hell is not a mystery. The, the idea of a God who would condemn a bunch of rebels is not a mystery. Do you want me to tell you what the mystery of the Bible is? Do you want me to tell you the great, unbelievable mystery of the Bible? That God sent Jesus to save sinners for heaven. This is the great, unbelievable, breathtaking plot twist in Scripture. That out of the blue, though we should be destroyed and wiped out, God sent Christ to save us in spite of everything that we are and everything that we've done. Where did that come from? The only answer is from a God of grace who surprises us with His mercy. The great mystery of the Bible is that there's a Genesis chapter 4. That's the great mystery of the Bible. After Genesis chapter 3, it should have been done. And then there's Genesis chapter 4. You're like, what? They're still going? Adam and Eve are still going? God's still talking to them? Where does that come from? It comes from a God who, in spite of all that we've done, in spite of all that we deserve, and the internal condemnation that we fully deserve, He chose to send His own Son, not just to die for us, but, but to rise again and save us. The amazing mystery of the Bible is not Ephesians chapter 2, 1 to 3. The amazing mystery of the Bible is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. This is the mystery. Ephesians 2, 4. Out of nowhere it comes, verse 4. But because of His great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we are dead in transgressions. Hallelujah. It is by grace you have been saved. We've been saved by the grace of Christ. Christ has come to save sinners like me He's come to rescue sinners like me out of the cesspool of sin 
to forgive me through his blood, to cleanse me and make me into something that he can use. It's such an amazing thing. It's such an amazing thing. And how do you get this salvation? How can you be sure that you are saved? I want to tell you this morning, you can leave this morning and know that you are saved. It doesn't have to be a question mark in your mind. How do you get this salvation? By faith in Jesus Christ alone. Look again at verse 8. Don't take my word for it. Look at verse 8. For it is by grace of chapter 2, 2, 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. We're not saved by our works. We're not saved by anything we do. I can't be saved by just trying to be a decent person. I can't be saved by trying to be nice to others, although it's important to be nice and be decent. I can't be saved by any religious activities. You're not saved by being christened as an infant. You're not saved by First Communion. You're not saved by confirmation. You're not saved by giving your testimony in front of a bunch of people in a Baptist church. You're not saved by being a pastor and going to seminary. We are saved by the blood of Christ and simply by trusting what He has done. Being a good Baptist, being a good Catholic, being a good Episcopalian, being good whatever cannot bring you to heaven. Only Christ can do it. And so we recognize our utter lostness, condemned criminals, and on our way to the gallows, we see Christ standing there on the side. He says, I'll take your place. And all we can do is by faith say, okay, that's it. You can't earn it. You just have to say, okay, Christ, I receive you. And if anyone here this morning will just trust in Christ as their Savior, you will be saved right now in this place right here. Put your faith in Christ and be saved. And so Christ calls us as his people who have been saved, not by our righteousness, but by his death. We who have been saved are called now to a holy lifestyle, not because we're better than other people, not because as Christians we have our noses in the air and looking down at people. Just because we've been in the cesspool, we don't want to go back. And so as holy people, let us separate ourselves from anything that would contaminate us spiritually. There's a uh, story told about uh, Jean-Francois Millet, who was a 19th century French realist painter. And when he first started his uh, painting, uh, as was the custom of the day, he painted nude figures. That was the kind of things he painted. And one day he overheard some people talking about his work. It was a group of men. They were looking at his nude paintings, but instead of talking about the artwork, they were sitting there making lewd comments. I mean, it was sort of, you know, they're looking at nudity and saying, you know, and they're making all these sexually explicit comments. And, and Millet was so offended by this that he went home to his wife and he says, I'm not painting nudes anymore. And she said, well, you know, we, we need money. This is what sells. No, nope, not doing it. Because it's, it, it's just not a good thing for, for people. You know, I saw people reacted to this. And so they, they accepted poverty. They went through some difficult times. And instead, he took as his subject matter the peasants of France. And he became known as the famous painter of peasants. He painted things like the, the gleaners and the sowers, and he, he painted these different scenes. I, I wish I, wish I had, could show you a, a slide of them. If I showed you these paintings, you'd go, oh yeah, I've seen that, I've seen that, I've seen that. I mean, this, this guy painted these beautiful, realistic pictures of people in the fields, these simple scenes. And what looked like a terrible career move ended up making him one of the people who's found in art history books because of his work. My friends, Christ is calling you and me to holiness. But he's not doing it because he wants to make us a bunch of frumpy, prudish, 
boring, snooty Christians. The reason he's calling us to holiness is because that's where the good life is. Christ is calling me today away from the cesspool of sin and toward the pure, sparkling ocean of righteousness where I can swim and enjoy his delights forever. And so let us be a holy and godly people and leave behind everything that would contaminate us. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus Christ, I again come to you. I am very much a sinful man who deserves hell. You know my life. Lord, I stand up here before these people, but it's such a joke that I should be standing up here. But God, I thank you that Christ has forgiven me And I thank you that Christ can forgive and cleanse anyone who turns to him. That at this moment, if anyone will put their faith in Christ, no matter who they are, they will be saved. What an amazing mystery. And so now, God, as your saved and holy people, help us to flee from sin. Lord, we don't want to just adopt some kind of legalism, some kind of angry fundamentalism that's making a bunch of rules about how we're supposed to live. Lord, we want it to come out of our hearts. We want to desire holiness from our hearts. We want to desire righteousness from our hearts. And so, God, do a deep work in our hearts. And, God, we we thank you that even though you have slated us for hell, you've saved us for heaven, and so it is well with our souls. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.